Blog Talk Radio. We are so excited to have you listening to NABWIC, the National Association of Black Women in Construction Blog Talk Radio Show. Please call, text, or email family, business associates, or friends and tell them that we are on the air right now. Or they can join us on the internet by logging in to www.blogtalkradio.com slash NABWIC or by phone at 714-459-3918 and press 1 to join our conversation with questions or comments. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Don't forget to follow us by liking our page and post your questions or comments. NABWIC's intent is to always go into the high schools and colleges to encourage our young black girls and women to enter into the construction industry and to take interest into the STEM programs that are offered. We encourage you to listen to this show or past shows on the Internet by logging in at www.blogtalkradio.com slash N-A-B-W-I-C. Good morning. This is Ursula Odom, and I am your host for Network Talks on Blog Talk Radio. And I'm also the CEO of Sula2, and we make old, new, and everything we do. In that, we will capture, preserve, and present your legacy information in any form that we can, from books to videos. Today, I will bring to you Yvonne J. Smith. And I'm excited about this conversation because she is a real estate developer with more than 20 years of experience. And she joined One West as president and CEO on January 2nd, 2018. She is the founding president of Sustainable Community Resources, a real estate development firm with offices in Winston-Salem and Greensboro, North Carolina that specializes in rural and urban real estate development in low to moderate resource communities. She is a partner on a $100 million mixed-use South Elm Street redevelopment project, now Union Square in Greensboro. And she led redevelopment of the historic Gola Heights neighborhood in downtown Winston-Salem. Now we will let her tell her story. Good morning, Miss Smith. Good morning. How are you today? I'm great. Excited about hearing your story because, man, this is impressive. And, and being able to find out how you got to this point, what what has that journey been like? Well, I started out in banking, and I was able to go from the item processing department to commercial branch management. And uh, that was in the uh, mid-'90s. And after that, I morphed into community economic development um, and just began as executive director of a nonprofit in a small area outside of Raleigh, North Carolina, and went on to Winston-Salem from there and did about $50 million in economic development in Winston-Salem, transitioning a low-income area basically into a very vibrant um, asset for the city, Um, doing multiple types of mixed-use projects. Uh, That area is now the uh, impetus for what is the mouth of the biotech park that was done by Wake Forest University after the donation of 40-some acres by RJR Tobacco. 
So I'm real proud of that project and real excited about we, the fact that we were able to do that revitalization without gentrification. Oh, now, how did you do that? What was the process? Because you know, as, by the mere fact that you brought that up, it is happening all over this country and, and devastating a lot of histor- historical areas. And given that one of the things that I do is to tell the story of the legends that walk this earth, either as a corporate uh, entity or as an individual, I am specifically interested in preserving that history and then bring and, and that which has been lost to bring it back. So when you say you did that without regentrification, how did that work? Well, it's it definitely takes the development team or the owners of a project being intentional about what they want to preserve. So in our particular area, we were able to look at the target market that we wanted to populate the area and and, and be able to sufficiently pay for the projects we were doing we looked at who lived there, and we wanted to positively affect those families as well as, uh, you know, attract our markets, our, our target market for re- new development or the revitalized buildings. The other thing is we wanted to remain true to the historic structures that were there and try to find the right kinds of financing that would allow us to do that. So we gave the, the folks that had to be relocated for the demolition of uh, dilapidated properties, they can then abandon and or um, occupied but not being maintained, we were able to get those families great places to live while we did the revitalization. But in our effort to attract millennials and to attract empty nesters who had this uh, discretionary income, we also made sure to prepare housing for people with no income um, and low income. So we were specific about that. We were intentional about that, and we did, um, at that time, you could do a HUD 203 um, senior housing project, which afforded you the ability to get the construction money as well as uh, some money to cover your operating costs, which meant we could do a wide range of subsidies on the actual unit. So that project basically replaced the low-income aspect of the um, provided housing for the low-income residents to come back um, three to one. So we we replaced about 28 units with 79 units of senior housing. So we we basically tripled what was available in the area. Um, The major uh, customer for us and, and, and consumer in the area and stakeholder was the church, uh, Golden Memorial Amy Zion Church, that was there. So now, of course, they're um, church members that um, age out and are become retired and or need senior housing. They have quite a, an option to choose from in that area, given that we were very intentional about making sure those options would be there for uh, seniors with low income. Uh, the other thing we did with our plan was to, to devise uh, a plan to work with the local school that was there. So there was a arts-based elementary school there. Um, and so we, we had single-family housing that we put in place, um, and we priced it so affordable so that um, moderate to uh, pretty much moderate to low-income and or market rate could choose to purchase and get a decent um, 
get a decent rate. So those were some things that, that we were intentional about that made it possible for us to skirt revitalization with gentrification. And also, um, to your point, to also remain true to the historic structures that were there to try to maintain them, those that we could. Um, and we did, we did maintain quite a bit. So I'm real proud of that. Now, when you said that it, you came back with three to one where you moved more people in in that category than was there originally, that <clears throat> speaks to and fascinates me when, when what normally happens is that people believe that when they, those people are moved out that they really don't want them to come back and affordable housing isn't, affordable to them anymore. And you're saying that that was not the case with you. No. Um, we we did get some high-end apartments in the neighborhood, but we also made sure we had um, a one-to-one match with low with a, a low-cost, affordable housing. Um, and like I said, we, did, we, we also had some units where if someone didn't have income, they could locate in, in the uh, Golden Manor building. So it balanced out quite nicely, but I do believe that developers and um, the community have to collaborate on what is needed in order to ensure they're having the kind of impact on the people who are there that that the people value and that is positive and impactful for them in a meaningful way. At the same time that developers are meeting their goals to be able to revitalize and, and um, improve their bottom line. I think there's a way to do both. Um, will the margins be the same, the margins of profit? Not on all projects, no. But being intentional about retaining people who, who have a commitment and who have um, grown up in those areas or who have made commitments in those areas to, to um, make it their community, to make it their home, there's a way to do both, I feel. What's affordable by definition? Like what's coming to mind, and and I'm out of the loop, so I'm really looking for clarification. When we used to think about affordable housing and younger people moving into homes, there was a whole systematic process where families were actually broken up. So has that changed? Can a complete family move into a, a, an affordable home? Well, I will tell you that affordable housing is deemed affordable to those with a median household income as rated by the national government or the local municipality. Um, and so it just depends what, on What is that? What's, what's, what's that number? Because I, I, I realize I don't know. It's a different number for every area. So okay. uh, where affordable housing in Atlanta may be different from what is deemed affordable in Louisville, Kentucky. Got so it. you have yeah. So you have to look at what the government what the rates are that the government has set for the particular area that, that you're located in. Um, based on that number, then you made decisions in what way? We made decisions to, to try to have uh, you know, options for uh, different income levels. Um, so we mm-hmm. were intentional about creating housing options and that that uh, could uh, speak to different income levels and that uh, 
and, and we basically made sure that our, our housing product was diverse. So you mm-hmm. had loft, you had loft apartments, you had uh, single family um, duplexes. Um, you also had uh, apartments for seniors right there in the same area. And so, um, you know, a market rate person, uh, sorry, a high income earner could locate in the um, market rate uh, apartments or, or loss, or a market rate person could buy a, a, a duplex. Um, and, and a person who made median income could buy a, a, what we call the townhome or who uh, could choose if they were a senior could choose to locate in the um, in the manor. Um, so there there were a number of opportunities there. Uh, later, the the uh, for profit market caught up with us and started uh, buying up the buildings around us. So our initial pioneering investment had a ripple effect. So mm-hmm. we began to attract developers from out of state, and they began to make investments and. So the whole area, basically, of uh, vacant and abandoned warehouses and and, um, un, and, and those that were underutilized and or uh, dilapidated um, and um, absentee owners may have uh, owned the property. Um, there were all kinds of scenarios, but investment started to happen as a result of our initial cleanup and the initial investment by Wake Forest. So it was a very small step but it started a ripple effect that that is now a very vibrant downtown um, in a city that really appreciates and values being um, a hub for innovation and technology and medicine and uh, education, just, you know, reinventing themselves throughout and and becoming a, a great attraction for empty nesters and young adults that are, um, millennials wanting to locate in a, a vibrant city. And that's the type of thing that, that we're doing here in Louisville. Um, Louisville is already a vibrant city with a lot of attractions. We just have a vein in the city that uh, has basically been forgotten in the way that um, you look at uh, development and you look at uh, economic indicators. And so this area of the city is now a focal point with uh, leaders across the city and the investment is starting to come, and our organization, One West, is being intentional about being a collaborator and being a um, a voice with the community on what they've said they'd like to see happen, uh, which is revitalization with intentional uh, retainage of families that want to remain in the area and thrive. And and that's what that's what we're focused on. We're focused on uh, helping to elevate the local businesses that are there, helping them to grow and and scale up to meet the demand that is coming or and that has already started, and then to to uh, work on the built environment and make sure that real estate is put back on the grid in a meaningful way. It's funny you you went straight to what I was going to ask next, and that was about the businesses. Because one of the things that I've said on a personal basis that when dilapidated areas are torn down, it's something that maybe all of us wouldn't mind happening, even if it's a historical spot, not necessarily building, but this is my spot on this world that I claim emotional attachment to. But if when that goes back up into this new structure that I have a piece of the pie somehow 
or somebody I care about or somebody that looks like me have actually monetarily benefited from that, then the pain is not as difficult, I would imagine, if if there's inclusion. So it sounds as if that's what you've done with businesses and the individual residents. Well, we, you know, in North Carolina, yes, we have examples of where that was done. Um, and, but in Louisville, we are starting, and our goal is to increase um, the minority representation in the revitalization and to ensure that there are opportun- opportunities for them to, to uh, benefit from the Renaissance and, and to be a part of it. Um, so I, what I love about Louisville leadership is everybody is working to make that happen. Everybody has that as an interest. And and we're all collaborating and working together, and it's just beginning. But we're we're you would not find more open-minded people that that are putting in and, and their best effort and coming to the table with that on the forefront of their mind. So they they don't sugarcoat that this may be a heavy lift, that this may require doing things that we haven't done before, but. This is where it starts. Just I think, just with the open-mindedness and the willing to coll- willingness to collaborate, and that that's where we are. Wonderful. So on that note, when you when we come back, what I'd like to do is talk more about you, the person, and your growth and development, and the people that impacted your lives in terms of giving you guidance. But we're going to take a commercial break, and then we'll talk about STEM and you when we return. We are so excited to have you listening to NABWIC, the National Association of Black Women in Construction blog talk radio show. Please call, text, or email family, business associates, or friends and tell them that we are on the air right now. Or they can join us on the Internet by logging in to www.blogtalkradio.com slash NABWIC or by phone at 714-459-3918 and press 1 to join our conversation with questions or comments. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Don't forget to follow us by liking our page and post your questions or comments. NABWIC's intent is to always go into the high schools and colleges to encourage our young black girls and women to enter into the construction industry and to take interest into the STEM programs that are offered. We encourage you to listen to this show or past shows on the Internet by logging in at www.blogtalkradio.com slash N-A-B-W-I-C. Thank you, and we're back. Welcome back, and I'm speaking with Yvonne J. Smith, and it's been a wonderful conversation so far, and at this point, what I'd like to do is find out more about her. So, Miss Smith, this little girl that grew up to be you, who is she? How did she get to be this person? Well, I would say basically from my parents. Um, I had, uh, I have a great mother who is a very dominant figure um, who had seven children, and she was intentional about uh, how we were to be raised, what kinds of young ladies we we were to be, and um, and she put education first. Um, and my I saw my dad get up every day and go to work and um, 
run his businesses, and he and my mom worked a lot of the businesses together. And when they moved in uh, 1980, they moved from Springfield, Massachusetts, where I was born and raised, down to a small town called Warsaw, North Carolina. And that was culture shock for me, coming out of a, a, a much larger city, uh, going to a small one-stoplight town. But it was very good for my growth and development because um, it, it, it really began to shape my character. And I learned about poverty firsthand. We went to my uh, my grandmother's house and we were able to see how people actually grew the food that they ate, how they had to be um, mindful about showing up on time to work in the fields and tobacco and picking um, blueberries and and strawberries or whatever it was that brought food and money into the family that you saw family after family um, just go at it in a way that that showed you that you know when it when it is uh, critical that you show up in order for you to eat you, you see people um, you, you you build character it builds character. <laughs> And while we mm. were while we were um, much more financially well off than a lot of the families that I went to school with, um, you know, I began to assimilate with those families and and make friends and and you know those some of those families uh, were family um, and uh, you you began to really I began to really understand what true poverty is and how important it was for a community to come together and help those in need and to be um to be uh compassionate um and, and non judgmental as to how maybe someone falls below the poverty line. Um you know the the term the working poor was not lost on me when I moved to Warsaw and saw um so many families with pride, uh, who carried themselves with pride, who had great great ethics, great character, you know, but willing to go do what they needed to do every day to take care of their families. Um, and and so I, I, I learned a lot from not only my parents but, but from my in-laws, um, family of 11 children. Um, my mother-in-law was the hardest working uh, person I know, um, not only, you know, going to work every day but also uh, raising her children and creating such a sense of community around her. Um, So I took all that with me to college at Shaw University in Raleigh, North Carolina. And, um, you know, back in those days, they used to send you a trash bag of frozen vegetables that they picked in the garden when you were in college. (laughs) (laughs) Everything in a baggie labeled with a marker, (laughs) you know. (laughs) So you knew what it was when you you let it thaw out. But uh, but I appreciate now, that. You, you laugh, but I totally understand. I grew up in the backwoods of Georgia, so I get it. We had a deep freeze, and yeah. I I totally get that. <laughs> yeah. I used to say that was love in a trash bag. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, once I was at Shaw, of course, when I went to school, you know, I, I worked. I worked full-time, and I went to school full-time. And so uh, for me, it was no easy road. Um, I, um, I later uh, had my sister come and, and, and live with me so she could uh, 
she could get, uh, you know, she finished her education um, in Raleigh also. And, um, you know, it was just, it was a real eye-opener. I started at First Citizens Bank, uh, worked my way up at the bank into management training. And once I went through management training, I was able to work at almost every branch. I think I worked every branch in the city, including the main office. Um, Worked in commercial lending in the main office and then um, moved into um, moved I was recruited actually to do uh, community economic development uh, later at once I actually went to BBT and did mortgage underwriting went to self-help and did um, mortgage lending um, so I was recruited after that period into uh, community economic development where I worked just outside of Raleigh and did a myriad of things, and that was my introduction to historic um, historic renovation. I, I was able to uh, revitalize uh, and restore an old historic building um, and uh, did about 17 units of single-family housing. Um, I was real proud of that work because we had multiple layers of financing on, on those single-family homes. We did, uh, we were able to, finance moms, single moms, who were uh, basically at moderate to low income. Uh, we were we were providing units of 1,700 uh, square feet and um, down to 14, or I think our lowest was 1,350. And so um, we were creating a community um, in, in that area, and uh, the uh, nonprofit had a history of doing um, other um low-income housing community, so I was able to build on that. We also did a business incubator where we were able to help minority businesses to, to um, grow, and um, and at that time I was um, also president of can the you stop Hold on one second, because I'd like to hear more about the, the business community that you um, created, because I'm a part of a a collaborative effort right now where they turned a storage unit into offices, and it's actually quite beautiful out there. So what was that process like? What did you all do? So we took an old J.C. Penney building, renovated it, and created offices within the building. So we had a credit union on the first floor and uh, a community center, um, and then we uh, took the upper upper floors and turned them into offices. And so as, an, as a uh, business incubator, businesses were able to come in at a, a subsidized rent rate, and it afforded them the ability to grow their business. We had professionals come in and work with those businesses. We partnered with the local uh, community college to host training sessions on business development, and um, we we just had a, a number of, of folks. We had lawyers. We had uh, construction uh, businesses. We had um, people who were doing consulting work, uh, tax preparation. All of those types of uh, local community services were being provided out of that building. So it um, it really had its purpose. And uh, some of the businesses grew out of the incubator. Some um, you know, did not make it, but you know that was a much smaller percentage. Um, so it was it was a real community asset. Nice. Okay, I didn't mean that. Well, I did mean to interrupt you because you hit a spot that was it was um, dear to my heart because we are quite proud of what we call 
um, that's 5508 here in the Tampa Bay area. That's okay. uh, a, a like-minded project that's pretty nice. Uh, so uh, um, you were saying, because I, I, you were about to say something else and I stopped you, but go ahead. Would you continue? Oh, no, I was just saying that, um, you know, those those were just some things that um, I, I think that were, were important that um, helped to shape my, my career. And so I would say that um, my biggest uh, contribution has been my understanding of finance and the ability to marry multiple layers of financing together. Um, I would also say that my mentors were instrumental and helping me get exposure to different people that could help us advance our cause. Um, there were folks like Abdul Rashid, who headed up the North Carolina Community Development Initiative at that time. He was an intermediary. He, he headed up a, a, the company that was an intermediary for financing for community-based um, nonprofits that were doing community economic development. Um, I would say Congresswoman Eva Clayton was significant and helping us gain, gain access to federal resources. Um, she was a very hands-on congresswoman, made sure that uh, you got exposure and got educated on how federal funding worked. Um, that was significant. Um, there were so many soldiers in the community that, um, that helped me on a day-to-day -day basis. I, I can't say enough about the Delta. They were always there, always helping, always volunteering. So it seemed like I had a much larger staff than I did. <laughs> uh, you know, so I just those those were mentors that I cared about. There was also um, the ability to be a part of the um, um, the Community Economic Development Association. So the uh, North Carolina Association of CDCs. They would invest in the people that were practitioners in the area of community economic development. So that afforded me another opportunity to get educated further in the work. We, were, we would always share best practices. I was able to go to Harvard's um, um, practitioner training every year. Uh, they had that in Chicago and um, in different places. And so when I could, I could uh, jump on that bandwagon and continue to, to advance my knowledge. So, so I would say that uh, I've had some some great opportunities, um, and I've served, uh, done this work under some wonderful mayors um, that have just been um, game changers for their community. Um, and when I went to Winston Salem, we had great leadership there. Um, there were, uh, and I will never forget in Winston Salem, uh, there was a gentleman by the name of Phil Haynes. And he was a, a city leader that uh, started bringing people together to talk about how we were going to transition the uh, city from uh, tobacco and um, and textiles and um, you know just uh, the industries that were going away, the, the banking centers, you know, that were were leaving. We were going to need to transition the community, the, the city, into a different kind of economic. Um, base, and as a result, uh, we started thinking more um, regionally. Started figuring out where we could be competitive. Started collaborating more with one another. Studying our data to understand where we were and how we were positioned in the 
in the national economy. And, and as a result, I think uh, the leaders made the right investments to help that city transform. So uh, Greensboro, I was able to participate with Greensboro in a much different way, actually, in more of an advocacy way. Although I was uh, working on projects in the city, um, in Greensboro, I really became an advocate for minority and women-owned business inclusion in the procurement process, and I used our project on um, South Elm Street to be a model for how you gain minority inclusion and how you help those businesses to grow by having uh, policies and practices that afford them the ability to participate. So, um, so you know, construction companies will tell you they're going to do what the owner deems necessary for that owner to realize their goals. So if the owner of a project issues an RFP or an RFQ for a project, they're able to determine how that construction firm responds or that design firm responds. And if you require them to have a diverse team and you require them to have a mentorship program, that's how you build uh, your economy in an equitable way, in my opinion. Um, That's how folks who might have previously been locked out of opportunities for procurement can gain a foot in the door to be able to participate, learn, and grow with companies that are realizing some pretty pretty major um, profit margins. And so in, th- in that particular arena, I was able, I think, to be impactful, um, and, and we saw some great results. Wow. And, and once again, you've answered what I was about to ask, because being a part of um, NAVWIC, National Organization of Black Women in Construction, um, I wanted you to speak to that audience and that um, that challenge, but it seems as if you were leading the charge on that as opposed to being impacted by it, because one of the things I was going to ask is, was there any pushback with your being a woman in this industry, and how did you handle it? Well, over the years, there's been... Um a number of challenges, uh, as you can imagine. (laughs) Uh, But I would venture to say I hope it's getting better. I've seen some advances in in the areas of, um, you know, where when markets are short of various skill sets and or trade, uh, you know, practitioners, um, you know, the people stop to stop worrying so much about the gender of the person providing the skill and and at the point where they run the risk of not being able to perform the contract as it's stated in the RFP or RFQ or as it's stated in their contractual agreement with the owner, I think it, it presents a lot of opportunity for women and minorities in business that that have honed their skills and are ready for the opportunity. Um, and that's just what, what I was trying to be, is someone who was ready when the opportunity came. I will say I, I've always tried to counter um, any negativity in my work with high productivity and, and, and high um, quality results. So I'm a results-driven person. And um, I, and, and that's just what, what I have tried to meet that, that, um, any of that conflict with. You know, just just kill them with the success of what we accomplished. That's that's how I felt. 
But I, I do recognize that you have to get that door open so you can get to the table and actually perform. So um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm always, I'm always um, champ, uh, trying to, to uh, be in the choir with the folks who are doing the, you know, pushing that door open because I think it's, it's very important and I, I value so much the shoulders that we stand on that we are able to, to be at the table in many ways that we weren't previously. So now we have a number of young ladies that are interested in the industry, and you mentioned when there's a shortage, then all of the pushback tends to take a second um, second place to getting what that owner or what that um, hiring entity is trying to accomplish. So what are some of the, the shortages that you are feeling right now? If you had a a daughter ready to enter into the industry, what would you be telling her to do? Coding, <laughs> cyber security. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, wow. You know, if she, were, if she were entering the construction industry, I'd say be mobile, be mobile. Look for economies or, or cities that the economy is thriving and that they have a need of services because that's how you can build your resume on the work that that uh, that you love to do. Um, I think for for a lot of our folks in the past, they you know they were comfortable in their community and they wanted to stay in their community. And they thought, you know, I should be able to build my business here. This is where I, I was raised, where I want to raise my family. And sometimes, you know, the the, the policies and practices and the institutional uh, systems may not afford them the ability at that time to make a difference. And a lot of the folks that I admire um, back 20 years ago, they went mobile. They went on the road. They got contracts in other cities, other places. They built their, built their resume. So when we started pushing the door open or, or, or requesting that the door be open, we had great businesses to present as a means of, uh, of uh as a, as a solution to the challenges that the cities had or that the private companies had in areas of, um, you know, various areas of construction. So it wasn't as if we were bringing any substandard business to the table. We were bringing people with a proven track record, people who had to go on the road in order to hone their skills and to grow and develop their businesses, and they were ready to do work in their own community. So I would say young people, find out where the opportunities lie, hone your skills, prepare so that when your your opportunity presents itself, you are ready to take advantage of it. That's wonderful. And it also brings back memories for me. (laughs) I actually spent um, quite a bit of time in a... um, computer company, starting out coding and then training in documentation and management. But after I left corporate America, I went into sales and then um, ended up marrying someone that was running a huge network organization. And I installed the system in the back office, the back office system. And had, it was during the time when you could when they first came out with um, laptops that you can have the 
the, the uh, mobile stick that plugged in, and I distinctly yeah. remember how how it felt traveling in a car going from okay we were coming the other way coming from from San Diego back to Florida and supporting sixteen thousand people around the country. <laughs> wow. It was it was a it was a freeing feeling be concerned about where I was. Now, today, that's probably nothing as far as people are concerned because you're mobile everywhere. But back then, my computer freed me to be in anywhere I wanted to be and do whatever I wanted to, and it was just wonderful. And right. um, to take that and put it on steroids today, <laughs> I can just see where if you're in the industry that you're talking about, cybersecurity, that has to be quite lucrative and and in demand, obviously, because that is a major thing that's happening to us every day. I just had one of my cards compromised, and and thank God they took care of it. But that was a uh, not a good feeling, and right? Not at all. Right. Right. Yeah. I can I can just I I don't even want to imagine. <laughs> I I know it was the first time it happened to me, but uh uh. Thank goodness I saw it, caught it, and reported it, and and they took care of it. So, anyway, um, on a better subject, <laughs> usually when I interview someone, there's always something that you wanted to say or you thought that you were going to say before you got on, and you haven't had that opportunity yet. So, what would you like to add to the conversation that I haven't been able to bring out so far? Well, excuse me. I would, uh, I think I would just say that uh, I'm very excited about the women in construction, and um, I would uh, venture to say that, in as much as as folks pay attention to what's required to perform the work of their trade, just that they pay attention also to the procurement process wherever they're submitting, um, you know, to do work. Uh, because that that procurement language is important, and making sure that that they are prepared uh, with whatever insurance is required, whatever their team, the work that their team has to do, and I'm speaking from the standpoint of a construction own a construction company owner or a tradesman that is a sub and owns their company and and would provide um, subcontracting services to a GC or even a design firm. One of the things um, during my tenure at the city of Winston-Salem as the um, head of the Division for Minority and Women-Owned Business Inclusion, one of the um, things that I I learned was that we probably need to educate people more on the procurement process uh, so that they can be prepared and hopefully so that um, they can push for very, um, I'd say, uh, uh, a very um, transparent review process so that they know the criteria upon which they will be evaluated prior to submitting so that these um, municipalities as well as the the private companies, that they would have a – a system that would uh, be very transparent and people can understand what what they're being evaluated against and and hopefully improve their their chances to get to get the contracts 
that they're going for. And I can verify, I mean, uh, testify to that because I just saw where a bid that I won or they had multiple people that won, but I was one of the people that did. And they revealed the their evaluation and the ranking. And I got a chance to look at that to see where I was and, and what other people did better than me and how I did better than others. And it was very useful when I went back to rebid for the second phase. Uh, so it really did help quite a bit to know that because you're not flying in the dark. Right. That's right. Well, thank you so very much. I have totally enjoyed uh, this conversation, and you're welcome to come back anytime. And we also would like to see you at a NAPWIC meeting, too. <laughs> so oh, I um, there will be an opportunity for you as well as our listeners to listen to this recording multiple times because she said some things that I think can be used as a model from what I can hear already, and you will want to listen to this again. And with that, I say thank you very much to my listening audience. We'll be back next Wednesday at 8.30. Join us. Take care. This concludes our show. Thank you for listening to NABWIC, the National Association of Black Women in Construction. For more information about NABWIC and our membership, please visit us on the web at www.nabwic.org. We are the voice of black women in construction. Have a great and prosperous day.